0: Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, and tonight we're going to uh, actually look down through verses 4 through 8. Next week we're going to finish chapter 4 and 5. We're going to put them together because we're going to see the completion of this whole picture of what's taking place in heaven at the time that, uh, that John was actually taken there, transported to heaven. In the spirit, as we've read already and studied already. So, uh, let's look at verse 4 and see this part of the vision that God is showing to John. I don't know why it's not working. Why is it not working? Is it working now? Okay. Can you hear me now? Is it working now? Okay. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And here we go again. All right. Do you let me do that or? Okay. Yeah, you let me do that. Okay, good. Thank you. All right, the the Apostle John was given a foretaste of rapture. We talked a little bit about the rapture not too many weeks ago. We're going to talk a little bit more about it as we go along. But he was given a foretaste of rapture when transported through the open door in heaven, as he said in verse 2, when he said, Immediately, I was in the Spirit. And what he was allowed to see first and foremost was the throne of God. And then, God himself. Seeing the surrounding glory and the brightness of one on the throne, symbolized by the jasper and sardius stones, as well as the emerald rainbow. Now remember, he wasn't looking at some figure. He wasn't looking at some old grandpa, you know, with really long white hair. Because we've seen those pictures. That's not what he saw. He saw the radiance of God's glory. But I believe it was important for him also to to share that he saw the stones, the stones that represent God's brightness and glory, the jasper stone, the clear crystal jasper stone, and that he saw the redness of the sardius stone, reminding us of the blood of Jesus Christ and reminding us also that what we're getting ready to see is judgment, because red represents fire at times and when we see it that way it, it's speaking of judgment by the way the redness of the blood of Jesus Christ is a reminder that if we had not received Jesus Christ we would certainly be judged for our sins There was an issue of judgment just keep that idea of judgment in mind as you go through the book of Revelation especially from here on So John was translated, transported, translated, raptured as it were, in both space and time. And not only to the throne of God, but also to the end of the age as well. And what he saw, he was commanded to utter. He was told to give us this vision. Now let me answer a question that is often posed by those who would object to the reality of heaven. Now, I hope and pray that all of you believe in heaven because you know what the Word of God says. But if you don't, don't shake your head or make a face like, you know, Oh, I really believe in heaven. I'm too smart for that. Oh, really? Okay. Well, you got a big problem then with Jesus. But I need to answer this question and this objection. The objection is this. If John was in the Spirit, would that not imply that the heavenly throne is a spiritual throne? Because I'll tell you this, there are some people who teach that in churches today. That if John was only in the Spirit, he only then only saw a spiritual throne. It wasn't a real throne, it was just something he saw in the Spirit. Kind of to encourage him to write this letter, to encourage the churches. You know that someday when you die, you know you're going to be in a nice place. So if John was in the Spirit, would that not imply that the heavenly throne is a spiritual throne and hence not real? The answer to that question is simple. If you've ever had to deal with that question, here's the answer. We know that the body of Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and that our Lord said to His disciples soon after the resurrection in Luke 24, verse 39, He said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, As you see, I have. Now, it was was that body that was ascended into heaven. And so there must be a material, physical heaven, or there was no ascension. And if there was no ascension, there was no resurrection. And if there was no resurrection... There is no salvation. Is that encouraging anybody? It's encouraging us to study the Word of God and to know it. And to know that if it speaks of heaven, it's real. If it speaks of the body of Jesus Christ, it's real. As a matter of fact, those of you that have been to Israel know that Israel does exist. Why is it that so many people today are trying to say, There is no no real Israel. All that is gone. No, they're there. Why? Because God is getting ready, just like His Word says. He's getting ready to come. Jesus is coming again. He promised he would come again. And everything is being set for that happening to occur. So our conclusion then is, and I don't want to get into the issue of Israel right now, but the conclusion is this there is a heaven and there is a throne. Oh, by the way, I have a slide for that. Are you are you doing it for me? What's why how come I can't control it? Because you know, okay, I don't know. I guess I lost control somewhere down the line. There is a heaven and there is a throne and John got to see them and he got to see him. He got to see the Lord in all of his glory. And you know that you can't do that in the flesh. That's why he was taken in the spirit. Now there will come a time, of course, John did eventually die and, and of course he's waiting for the resurrection of the faithful and all. But... Um, The Lord gave him that opportunity to see that for our benefit. Now picking up from where we left off last time, John pointed out 24 thrones before he mentions those who sit on them. 24 elders sitting and wearing white robes with crowns on their heads. And and, and there are those who who believe that these are angels. And I think I touched on this last time, but I'll I'll kind of review it again. Again. Uh, There are those who think that these are angels, but chapter 5 and verse 9 clarifies for us that they are not angelic beings. Go ahead and give me, yeah, there you go. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation that phrase there that i have underlined and have redeemed us to God by your blood if they're singing that then that phrase cannot be sung by the angels it cannot be sung by the angels jesus didn't come to die for angels he came to die for you and me he came to die for us who are sinners Now there are fallen angels. They cannot be redeemed. A third of the angels fell with Lucifer. But they cannot be redeemed. They were created to be around the throne of God. The cherubim and the seraphim were created to be around the throne of God to give honor and glory and worship and praise unto the Lord. But Lucifer, as we have studied in Isaiah 14. Took it upon himself to want to be like God. Even to sit on the throne. That was his rebellion. And he brought that rebellion in heaven. Taking a third of the angels, he brought that rebellion onto this earth in Genesis chapter 3. And that's why there's sin. And we studied that back in Genesis chapter 3 a couple of years ago. So... We will deal with that again in the book of Revelation. So please keep that in mind. But Christ Jesus did not come to redeem angels, but mankind from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Therefore, we can say that these 24 elders are representative. They're representative, and I'm going to just outright say they're representative of Israel and of the church. The heads of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Put them together, and those are the 24 elders. Because they stand as representations and and, and representatives of the redeemed. The redeemed of the Old Testament, the redeemed of the New. And if they are indeed representative of believers redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ throughout the ages, then here is yet more proof that the church of Jesus Christ will not pass through the tribulation period since we find these singers in heaven before the beginning of the judgments. That's all very important here. This is taking place before the judgments begin. The judgments will begin in chapter 6. I mentioned to you earlier, we're going to study next week the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5 all together to see this final picture here before we move on into the judgments. A picture of praise and worship, a picture of giving honor and glory to God. By those who represent the church as being there before the throne of God. We'll talk about that more then next week. As for the identity of the 24 elders, let's look closely, if you will, at Revelation 21, verses 12 through 14. Ah, thank you. All right. Got control again. Actually, Lord, you do have all the control, not me. But uh, thanks. Okay. Revelation 21, verses 12 through 14. Also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and Twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names, notice, of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. (laughs) Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So this gives us some indication that what we consider heaven and we consider that place that we're looking at tonight and uh, in chapter 4, and we're going to again kind of see what's going to happen in uh, near the end of the of the book of revelation there are 12 names mentioned of of the tribes of uh, the leaders of the tribes of israel and the leaders of of the church which were the apostles now that's really important that i say leaders because the word elder presbyteros in the um, in the greek is the word that deals with leadership And 24 is a number throughout the scriptures that deals with leadership representation. So there is leadership being represented here for the church and for the redeemed of Israel. So these elders now are described as being clothed in white garments or robes and on their heads crowns of gold. It's interesting that uh, when you go back into the Old Testament, uh, the priests were not actually... Clothed in white garments, they were clothed in linen garments, but uh, the color of white is is very clearly representative of something even greater uh, than the the priesthood and of course, then that is of course perfection. white is a color of perfection, it is in fact perfect righteousness, it is the color of god 's perfect righteousness, but it is also here in this case, because they're wearing the white robes representative. Of the righteousness of the saints. The righteousness of the saints. Now, again, realize that they're not righteous because they've done anything to become righteous. They are righteous because they have received the blessing of the righteousness of Christ. We receive the righteousness of Christ. We're not righteous in and of ourselves, but we have now the righteousness of Christ. That has become our clothing. If you read Romans chapter 13, it talks about putting on. The righteousness of Christ. Putting on Christ as a garment. It's his righteousness. It's not ours. So, uh, Revelation 19 verse 8 kind of gives us a little a clue to that. It says, And to her it was granted to be arrayed, arrayed in fine linen. This is speaking, by the way, of the bride. Uh, to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So, Why do we act righteous? Because we have the righteousness of Christ. Again, it it all comes back to Him. So it's it's representative of that. Now, the redeemed and the raptured are now with Jesus. And they are like Jesus. The redeemed and the raptured. The redeemed being the redeemed of of Israel. And those that uh, have now come before the throne of God. They are with Jesus. And they are like Jesus. Now, it is the same Apostle John who tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he says this, he says, Beloved, now... And I want to emphasize the word now. Now, today, this moment. Now, are uh, we are the children of God. Now. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Now, isn't that true? I mean, it hasn't been revealed. I mean... None of us have, you know, taken that, uh, you know, nice long nap in the afternoon and then all of a sudden we see the brightness of the glory that we're going to have on us, right? None of us have really seen that. I mean, we probably like to see it, but we we haven't seen it. We don't know what it's going to be like. I really don't know. I'm going by what the Word of God says because I've been there. And and neither have you. So I'm just, you know, waiting with anticipation to see what it's going to be like. So John says, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know. Now here's something, if we know something, then we need to take hold of it in the Word. It says, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. Things are going to change for us. As a matter of fact, when you read First Corinthians 15, and it talks about being changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, going from corruptible to incorruptible, from mortal to immortal in essence, it's it's a change that we're 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 just it's going to be so quick. We're we're you know we just need to be ready for it, but. Uh, how quick that is. I mean, the blink of an eye and boom, all of a sudden things are different. Things are changed. He says, We shall see him as he is, but we shall be like him. And of course that is that they are fashioned like unto him. Those 24 elders, representative of all of the church, And of all of the redeemed, down through the ages, they are fashioned like unto Him, saved, (coughs) excuse me, saved from the presence and the possibility of sin. Now in the presence of the Lord, now in the presence of that throne of God, they are saved from the presence and the possibility of sin. Saved from it completely. They are forever free from that constant struggle against evil which characterized their pilgrimage on earth. And even the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, he says this, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven. Now I know that many of you have passports, United States of America passports, maybe Mexican passports, whatever. Uh, you might have a different passport. But here's the thing. You have a passport, but it's going to expire. Our time here is going to expire. There's really only one passport that matters. And that's the passport that has the stamp of the love of Christ on it. It's the passport that has the stamp of the blood of Jesus Christ on it. That's your passport. Which says you are actually a citizen of heaven. He says for our citizenship is in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body. Yes, folks, I don't care how many hours you spent today in the gym. You look, you look good, but you know, it's still a lowly body. According, It says that it may be confirmed, we, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. What a wonderful thing it is to know that that kind of change is going to happen. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then you need to believe this. As I said many years ago, it seems like many years ago, but back when we started Genesis chapter 1, which is uh, three years ago uh, already, when we started Genesis chapter 1, I I, I mentioned this. If you can believe Genesis 1-1, then you can believe all the Bible. If you can believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you can believe everything that's in the Scriptures. So you can believe this. We're going to change. All that suffering, all that pain that we go through sometimes. Even just waking up. We're not going to have to worry about that because we're not going to wake up anyway because you're not going to go to sleep. There's no sleeping in heaven. Don't think you've got to take a sleeping bag to heaven. There's no sleeping in heaven. The Bible says there is no night in heaven. It's going to be bright all the days all the days long, which is eternity. And we'll be loving God, loving Christ, loving the church, loving where we are. I don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to do something. Because we've got to do it for eternity. So get ready. Be excited about it, see. Be excited about it. The gold crowns on the heads of these elders reveal their royal dignity. There's something... Precious about that crown. Nowadays in the world, you know, we think of, we hear of kings and we say, oh man, those guys are just rich and they don't do anything, you know. They just have this thing handed down to them from years on by, you know, gone by and, and whatnot. Well, maybe so. But it means something to the Lord. It means something to the Lord that the King of kings and Lord of lords has given us royalty as part of. Of our inheritance. It means something. And and here here are the representatives of the redeemed with crowns on their heads, washed from their sins in Christ's blood, overcomers who have been made both kings and priests. That takes us back to chapter 1. For just a moment, let's review that. Verses 5 and 6, where it says, "...and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead..." And the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us. Notice John is speaking, and he said, He has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a blessing that is. The word crown is the word Stephanos. It is the victor's crown. And Jesus Christ has won the victory for us. Whoever wears that crown has won the victory of of eternal life, of eternal righteousness, of eternal glory, which is God's glory that we will live in and bask in forever. Now, after John sees all of this, after John sees all this, there is the first fate rumbling of judgment that would come forth against mankind that is outside of Christ. Mankind that's outside of Christ, this is what the judgment's all about. And it's also a judgment that's going to be against the empire of the evil one, against Satan. But the first rumblings occur in verse 5 of our text. It says, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And the voices themselves can be likened unto trumpets. Remember I said earlier, we mentioned when we read Psalm 98 earlier today that there's voices. Well, voices like trumpets. That's us. You know, we we, we make that, you know, that, uh, that sound if we wanted to. But, but the Lord's voice is going to sound like a trumpet. And trumpets are significant. Certainly to the Jewish people, the trumpet called the shofar, the ram's horn. Call the people together. Call them together for assembly. It's a blast of the ram's horn played by Jesus that's going to take us to heaven when the time comes. It's that Ram's horn that's blasted that warns us of things to, to come, as we'll see throughout the rest of the book of, of Revelation. But here it says that from the vo- of the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, there is something in this verse that we must consider carefully and seriously, and that is that the throne of God mentioned here is. The throne of judgment. If you write anything down in your notes, write that down. It is the throne of judgment. There is no throne of grace because at the end of the age where John was transported to, remember this, he's transported to the end of the age, the day of grace has already passed. And judgment is going to begin. The day of grace is past. Remember that verse in the in, in, in the book of Jeremiah that talks about the harvest is ended, the summer is past, and we are not saved. It gives us an indication of the seriousness of judgment to those who do not believe in God and in Christ. There's a time when it comes to an end. And God is merciful. And God is gracious. God is kind. God is love. Right now, because right now, we're living in the day of grace. And He'll always be that. But don't forget, God is also just. He is a righteous and just God. So, a time will come. When judgment has to be declared. The reason why the Lord doesn't judge the world today in spite of the predominant wickedness that there is. Is because he is seated on the throne of grace now. But here John is given to see the day when judgment will issue forth from his thrones. Lightnings, thunderings, voices. Those three sounds are the same sounds that proceeded from Sinai when the law Was being given. Look at Exodus 19, verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. The sound of the trumpet was very loud. It was not in the camp. It wasn't anybody in the camp. It was coming from where the thunders and lightnings were coming from. The thunderings and the lightning. What is that? The voice of God. And it was so loud that it made the people tremble. Now, you know, it's interesting that the, the, the Israelites trembled, but they didn't obey. <laughs> they trembled, but they didn't obey. Because just a few chapters later, they're struggling through the wilderness, aren't they? A frightful storm is about to burst on the earth below. The day of justice and judgment is imminent. The signs will appear again a few times as we move through the chapters outlining the judgments of chapter 6 and following. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. Appearing with these signs here is the sevenfold Holy Spirit. We've already talked about the seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. But here again, we see the sevenfold Holy Spirit conforming to the scene of judgment as seven lamps of fire. Seven lamps of fire. And again, the number seven is used characteristically of the Holy Spirit in pointing out the fullness and the completeness of His omniscience and of His omnipotence. Now, omniscience is His all-knowingness. In other words, He, he knows all things. That's omniscience. Omnipresence, of course, Means that He's always present. Omnipotence is He is all powerful. He is all powerful. And so the Holy Spirit here in this in this uh, sevenfold presence is showing His the fullness and completeness of God's omniscience and omnipotence as well as His judicial character. Fire being symbolic of divine judgment. Now, I would like for you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 for just a moment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, because here there's something that Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we need to see. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 8. In the middle of a sentence, but nonetheless, Paul says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, Those who troubled the church were, of course, the unbelievers. They they were the ones who were were, uh, uh, persecuting the church. And Paul makes it clear to them in 2 Thessalonians that God is going to repay with tribulation those who troubled the church. Unless those who were persecutors became believers, like the Apostle Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus. He was the chief persecutor of the church, and he became a believer. Nonetheless, if they do not repent and they do not turn to the Lord, then there is judgment. And not just because they persecute the church, but because they don't believe in God and in Christ. So he says that he will repay with tribulation those who trouble, you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ which is speaking of the second coming of Jesus which is a different event than the rapture of the church and again we're going to clarify that as we go through the book of Revelation. So what we're receiving here then in this particular passage that we're looking at tonight is the prelude to judgment. This is the prelude to judgment. This is what is going to take place before judgment comes to the earth. So I want to read to you from verses 6 through 11 of Revelation 4. We're only going to kind of study verses 4 through 8. We already did 4 and 5. So we're going to go 6 through 8 here in just a moment. But, but let's, let's read each verse. Because again, I want you to continue to capture the vision of heaven. I want you to see heaven as it is today. So, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. King James, it says, a glassy sea. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In other words, He is eternal. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns. Now remember the crown, the Stephanos? They cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Are there any words in any human language fit to describe heavenly things? We do the best we can, don't we? I suppose we do the best that we can with what we've got. But how can mere words describe the glory of heaven and the glory of the throne of God? The symbolism used throughout the book of Revelation will help give further light to the meaning of whatever words that we use. One major clue, though, for understanding this last portion of chapter 4 and really every scene that we have of heaven is given to us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. So this is a key for us to understand some of the things we're seeing. It's a key. Therefore, uh, uh, we're told... Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now, just to clarify what Paul has been talking about here, of course, is that is all of the sacrifices, all of the things that were that were made uh, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, to build the tabernacle, which was going to be the, the place where God would meet with the children of Israel uh, in the wilderness, all of those things, the sacrifices themselves, the tools, the instruments, the vessels, all of it are just copies of things in heaven they 're just copies. And he says it was necessary that the copies of these things in heaven should be purified. But the heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices than these. Now what would that be? The only thing that could could sanctify and really, really uh, bless and purify would be the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. And that's what he goes on to say in, in, in the book of Hebrews. Christ is the better sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats. The blood of Jesus Christ is the better sacrifice than the blood of of turtle doves and and, and any other animals that were used for sacrifice. The blood of Jesus Christ. Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than Joshua. Christ is better than all. And that's the point. But the copies were important. So we are being given the copies to see what it's like in heaven. There we're told that the tabernacle built by Moses, the the specifications and the fixtures which were given by God Himself on Mount Sinai were the patterns and the representations of things in heaven. When a priest entered the, the holy place of the tabernacle for the first time, the first thing that they would see would be the menorah. And it was a big menorah. But they would see the menorah, the seven, uh, candle candlestick. Or the seven pointed candlestick. They would see that for the very first time. And the seven pronged candlestick would illuminate all of his ministrations. Everything that he did in that room, that candle would illuminate it because it had the lamps on it. That was the first thing he saw. That's what John saw. But he saw the real thing. He saw the heavenly candlestick. Which was the sevenfold spirit of God. And in this case, it was in preparation for judgment. Because the, the emphasis, the focus was on the fire. The fire. Now, then John saw Before the throne, a glassy sea. Remember that phrase from the King James, a glassy sea. Like crystal, it says. The New King James says a sea of glass, like crystal. I want you to consider, if you will, Solomon's temple. Let's go to First Kings chapter seven, verse twenty three. And notice that he uses the same term in the old testament. The sea. And he made the sea of cast bronze. I mean, did he make an ocean? What is the sea? When you do go to the ocean, those of you that have been to the coasts, wherever you've been, if you get into a certain place where you don't see much of anything else, all you see is sea. All you see is sea. And if it's calm, it's like a glassy sea. So it's 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 representative of what the eye sees. You see, you see, a lot of seas there. But it wasn't a sea. It was a laver. It was a basin. In other words, it was a big wash pot. And I'll give you the, a little bit of the dimensions here in a minute. He made the sea of cast bronze 10 cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was 5 cubits and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Now, I'll give, I'm only going to give you the most important detail. The great basin that just was described for the temple, Solomon's temple, was 15 feet in diameter. 15 feet in diameter. Supported on the backs of twelve oxen of brass facing outward. It was here. And by the way, the oxen represent what? Servitude. They were they, they were the ones who, who represented service. And you'll see that in just a moment as well. But they, the, the, the basin or the laver as it were or the sea of glass was supported on the backs of twelve oxen of brass facing outward. It was here that the priests came for their cleansing. They, they had to be cleansed before they went into the temple. Now there was a smaller laver of course for the tabernacle, but that's again going to that place first. You had to be cleansed to go into the holy place. Of the tabernacle. Now, it is very interesting to note that Moses, for the tabernacle, Moses made the laver, in other words, the basin for the tabernacle, he made it from the metal mirrors given by the women. Mirrors that were melted down. The mirrors were not like our glass mirrors. They were melted down because they were very highly polished metals. That's what they looked at to see how cute they were. They melted that down to become the laver for cleansing. Now this is very significant. Human vanity and pride when you stand in front of a mirror whatever it is, I don't know. Human vanity and pride were melted down. Are you getting the picture? Everything is symbolic. Human vanity and pride were melted down in God's presence. The sea of glass that now reflects the heart of a person going into the holy place. When we see Him, we must go to His labor for cleansing. And today, our font of cleansing, our fount of every blessing, is Jesus Christ. You come to him for cleansing. He's our glassy sea. In 1 John 1 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful. Amen? He is faithful. There's one other verse I want to add to that. And that's 2 Corinthians 3.18. Because I want you again to notice what it says. It says, but we all, speaking to believers of Je- in Jesus Christ, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, that's, that's our daily Walk with Christ. That every day we're being transformed. Beyond our ups and downs, beyond our struggles, beyond our trials, the Lord is transforming us day by day. Look at the mirrors that God has given us the mirror of His Word. We open His Word and go, Lord, it's like a mirror. The Lord reads us and knows us. And He loves us. The presence of the Lord among us tonight, when we worship the Lord, is a mirror to our hearts. A mirror that encourages our hearts that He has not given up on us. No matter what we see in that mirror, He's so faithful. He's going to complete what He began in us. Never forget that. Philippians 1, six, He who began a good work in you is able to complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. What He has begun, He will complete. So around the throne as well were four living creatures. Uh-oh, here we go. We're getting some first of the weird visions of the book of Revelation, right? Well, it says that there are four living creatures. I know that in the King James they're called beasts, but don't get the wrong impression because of that word. The word actually in the Greek is the word zoon. Z-O-O-N. Zoon. For living creatures. Zoon. Guess what word we get from zoon? Zoo. And in other words, zoology. So for those of you that play words with friends, you have some help there. But these creatures are far from being mere beasts. You see, they are creatures of the highest order. And from comparing this passage with biblical passages such as Exodus 25 and 26, which by the way, in Exodus 25 and 26, the... the uh, the implements of the, of, the, of the tabernacle had in them the images of cherubim and seraphim. So that, that's the point here. These are actually cherubim. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But Exodus 25 and 26 talk about the, you know, putting them into the... For example, what's sitting on top of the... Uh, of the, uh, of the uh, Bema Seat of Christ or, or what is called the Bema Seat or, or the Judgment Seat uh, which is the top of the Ark of the Testimony two cherubim facing each other so or seraphim but, but in any event they're, they're facing each other it is in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10 that we actually see that these creatures are being seen in the vision given to Ezekiel So because of this comparison, we can say unequivocally that they are none other than cherubim, an order of of angelic beings. I don't know what that was. An order of angelic beings who surround the throne of God. Now scripture lets us know that Satan was once one of these high angelic beings. Now, we could go to Isaiah 14, but let's go instead to Ezekiel 28, verse 14. Because in Ezekiel 28, verse 14, it says, Of this particular being known as, eventually being known as Satan, it says, You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walk back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. So it's speaking of this angelic being that once worshipped before the throne of God, but no longer. By the way, angels were created all at once. Angels don't have birthdays like we do. So you have to understand that they're dealt with by God in a totally different way than, than man. So keep that in mind. But these living creatures are described as being full of eyes, front and back, indicating that they are not blind vessels or robots. They have knowledge and understanding. And they have great insight and they have great perception. They don't have what we have, Because sometimes angels will wonder why God would do what he does for us. But they do have great perception. They do have great insight. And these beings live their existence for the sole purpose of worshiping God. They live their existence for the sole purpose of worshiping God. Now, that doesn't mean that they would only just sing all the time before the throne. They have other things to do, but they do what they do as worship unto God. Which should encourage us that whatever it is that we do, we should do as worship unto the Lord. All that we do, whatever God has opened doors for us, as far as our work, as far as what we do at home, all of these things are to be worship unto the Lord. It's been said that all failure to worship, or to truly worship, is rooted in a lack of seeing and understanding. So these creatures actually see and understand, and they worship. People fail to worship because they're not seeing and understanding. And a lot of that is because they don't get into God's Word and start to see and understand what God is saying. Or they're not taking the opportunity as you have tonight to take uh, this portion of scripture and learn from it what the Lord is saying to us about heaven and what it's saying to us about the preparation for the judgment that is to come but that should humble us not to make us proud it humbles me more and more to see what the scripture says about what's yet to come so certainly our worship must be and it needs to be intelligent our worship should always be intelligent Our service, as a matter of fact, in our bulletins, if you read the back of the bulletin, it tells us that our worship is an intelligent worship. And it should be intelligent. Our service of worship must never be rash. In other words, it it must never be hasty. It must never be impulsive. It must never be careless or even thoughtless. Whatever words we sing, we should sing from the heart. Whatever words we pray, we must pray from the heart. As unto the Lord, as unto the Lord who is present with us right now. I mentioned Romans 12 verse 1 before, but let me, let me bring it to you here. I beseech you therefore, brethren, Paul said, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is, notice, your reasonable, logical, rational service, which is of worship. If we were to really read this in its completeness and in its full understanding, it says that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable, logical, rational service of worship. Our worship has to be intelligent. Now John describes the four cherubim. And I'm going to do this kind of quick because we're running out of time. But initially it appears each of these four living creatures has a different face. It may be that each creature has four faces. And and we're going to talk about that later. But but it could be that there are four creatures and each creature has these four faces. If we compare these creatures to those mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 1 especially. But for now we'll consider the various interpretations of these faces. The four faces have been said to represent the elements, you know, the earth... Wind, fire, whatever, water, uh, the cardinal virtues, uh, the faculties and powers of the human soul, I don't know. the patriarchal churches, uh, the great apostles, uh, the the orders of, of churchmen, the, the the principal angels, and so forth. <laughs> One consideration can be that the four faces of the cherubim are symbols of Jesus as represented in each gospel. For example, let me let me just show you this very quickly. I hope you can read it. It says in uh, Matthew, the gospel of Matthew is considered to be that of the lion, representative, represented by the lion, I should say, because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, Matthew is primarily a, a gospel written to the Jewish mindset. So that's an interesting thing. The you know the face of the lion would be then to represent Matthew, which is uh, shows Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark, <coughs> excuse me, Mark is rep- uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, would be the the oxen or the ox, because the oxen is again a, a symbol of service, and so Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark is a humble servant. I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That's in Mark chapter 10. So, he's a worker. So that's what the Gospel of Mark represents. And then the Gospel of Luke speaks of Jesus as the Son of Man. So man, then the face of a man. Jesus was the perfect man because he was the second Adam. But he was not only the Son of Man, he was the Son of God. And not only was he the Son of God, he is... God the Son. So it speaks of his, uh, his deity. It doesn't speak so much of his deity as does the next one, which is John, which has the eagle, or the representation of the eagle. That which soars above all is representative of Jesus being the eternal word of God, soaring above all. In, 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 in his supreme sovereignty, that's what the eagle would represent. But maybe it's safest to say that the four faces are important because they represent all of living creation in its highest superiority. The lion, the mightiest of the wild animals. The ox, strongest of the domesticated animals. The eagle, king of all birds. And man, the highest of all creation. But there's one last thing to consider. One commentator states that these four faces illustrate the different personalities of God's ministers. Courage and fortitude that of the lion. Mildness and meekness, that of the oxen and the calf. Wisdom and prudence, that of man. And the insight into the mysteries of God's kingdom, which can only be seen by the eagle who soars so high. But here's the thing. Let's just put it this way, just to close it all out a little bit. We see Jesus As the king who came to serve as a man, but who is fully God. In those four things, we see Jesus wrapped up. A king who came to serve as a man, but is fully God. In our next study, we will see what happens at the throne of God and combine the remainder of this chapter with all of chapter 5. But the lesson that we can take home with us tonight is that the Lord has invited us to meet him at his throne. God gave Moses that invitation concerning the mercy seat. When in Exodus 25 verse 22 it says, And there I will meet with you. God to Moses. There I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Well, let me say that the same commandment, or I should say the same invitation, has been extended to us as well. And I close with that. Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. Paul Paul says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's our invitation. Come to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace for help in time of need that's how much we need the Lord and we need him every day let's meet him every day at the throne of his grace remember Jesus said come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest what a rest that is let's pray